0: Hi, I'm Mary Heron, director of the movie, and this is January 6th, 2005. I'm watching American Psycho, which was made in 1999 and came out in the spring of 2000. I haven't re-watched really this film for about four years. I found it hard I, after it came out. It, I just wanted to, to let it be for a while. So now I'm watching it again for the first time in a long time. This opening credit scene was conceived late in the editing stage. It wasn't scripted, and I just had the idea of raspberry coolie, <laughs> these sauces that restaurants smothered food in the 80s, and that you would think it was blood, that it would start with these drops, and you'd think, oh, it's a horror movie. And then it would suddenly realize it was shishi restaurant food. And I feel like if we did a sequence like this, You'd know what kind of film you were seeing, that it was, it seems one thing, but it's another, or is it? Is it a horror movie? Is it social comedy? Uh, well, it's both. I wanted to establish that right from the beginning. I had to really fight for the money to get this scene shot because there was nothing in the budget for it. Uh, and we ran out of filming time when we were shooting all the food, which is a shame because there was lots of other wonderful food that we could have shot for the opening. <laughs> there was just left unfilmed all the descriptions of food come from from the book American Psycho Uh, Brett did brilliant restaurant comedy and he caught the, the, um, the crazy complications of food in the 80s where you would take something very simple like cheese, meatloaf and, and make it out of swordfish, swordfish with some, you know, evening, exotic accompaniment. Onion, uh, and there are points in the film where the, and the description of foods become food so bizarre, but so that they, the they, line, they start off as, as stuff that would really be on menus and then becomes more surreal.
1: Really <laughs> surreal. Um, um, <laughs> yeah. God, I hate this place. The chick's restaurant not we doors yet? Because
0: Now we be meet a Bateman d- and his and his friends, his his friends and colleagues, uh, is McDermott Ree- there, uh, uh, Tim Price. Uh, well, Tim Price is as Josh it, played that's Josh Lucas playing McDermott. Paul Paul Justin throws Allen. Price. on the other
1: side of
0: the. And they're watching. Uh, uh, in, uh, uh, the Robinson 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 and there's there. oh, also Bill Sage call. right there. and they're I wanted to establish that. Bateman was just one yeah. of a group. Jesus They're Man, all handsome. They really all wear smart I've suits. They all dress alike. The They're all manicured. They all money have money the same business cards. And that part like of control. the... Um, the oh com- there's a great God. deal of comedy oh of mistaken God. identity. And pancakes. in the very opening pancakes. conversation here, um, um, McDermott and Bateman and Freiser are arguing, and Ben Patten are arguing, over who somebody is, because because everyone looks alike. You, know, you see, they all have the same credit cards. No one knows who anyone is, which is what will allow Baton to get away with his murders. A lot of uh, drag queens in here, which is such a big '80s and '90s feature of New York nightlife, and they're doing Charlie's Angels because that was a the thing. There were all these like theatrical things in, um you know, the Tunnel or other 80s things where they would be these fabulous performances. Now, I love also, if you look at the ba- at the wonderful bad dancing that Justin Theroux and Bill Sage are doing, they're doing Wall Street guys trying to be hip and doing this really awkward, painful dancing with blonde girls. Uh, famous Toronto punk there. Oh, that's my sister, Kelly, Kelly Heron. She's now forgiven me for making her do this part. And this is where we also get the Bateman mask slipping where she, as the character turns away and she can't hear him as he's making bloody threats house. against her. Play with your blood. So th- this is the first clue, for anyone who didn't know this, the story, that there's something wrong here with this character. Now the film starts, which is in the pristine white Bateman apartment. Our production designer, Gideon Ponte, created this perfect white 80s box, polished wood floors, you know, sort of antiseptic, beautiful. And the sound design allows no traffic. There's hardly anything from the outside. I want it to be like a hermetically sealed box. White bathroom, white white apartment, black marble bathroom. uh, And everything looking like a, a photograph out of... Architectural Digest or somewhere. Nothing, no personal details. This reflection in the um, Les Miserables just happened. That was serendipity. Later, there'll be something um, scary in in the the fridge. I wanted the kitchen to be stainless steel like a morgue. And uh, and that's all I said. And then they created this fantastic thing, which is also very reflective. That's a trans light representing New York City behind because this is actually shot in a studio in Toronto. This is the body that Christian created out of his skinny English form through months of incredibly obsessive exercise and working out and diet. A lot of the uh, girls on the set came and watched the monitor while we were shooting this, a little gathering. We shot extra shower stuff because I had a feeling we'd need to bridge it. We might need it as a bridging scene later, and I was very glad I did because we come back to the shower. This, to me, is the most important. If I had to save one scene out of this movie and I had to say one scene that what this movie is about, it's this scene where he puts on the
1: mask.
0: And he's looking at himself in the mirror, and what does he see? I did, we shot it very early on. It's so perfect. Andre's lighting was beautiful. Andre Sakula, the cinematographer. We couldn't clear a lot of the projects. If you notice, you, they're, the names are obscured because most firms said we couldn't, didn't want to want to be associated with us. And this moment, when he takes off the mask. I was so worried this wouldn't work. It's our first take, and he pulls it off, and it's like, oh no, it's just going to come off in pieces. He pulls it off,
1: and it's perfect, all in one
0: and he pulls off the mask and it's like he reveals his face and it's another mask and to me that's the most crucial image in the film it's a great song here walking on sunshine and annie marcus a wonderful film editor who's so important to this film said to me at one point you know the happier the songs are the better they work and it's true like the more happy upbeat just bright bright pop music for Bateman and somehow it all works and this again is a studio created by Gideon although everybody looks alike you'll see lots of extras all canceling everybody this is, this is Chloe Sevigny who canceling is anyone else? one of the most remarkably natural actors in the world I think she is so real and so and what I say? fresh and I in this very highly stylized film okay. She's so beautiful and real and simple and natural, and, and it, it makes it feel bearable in some ways, I think, because otherwise it's a very, it's a hard world. Oh, and, and she's so moving here, she's there got such a crush on her feet boss, feet. and you can see, and she's trying not to show it, and he's kind of tormenting her and teasing her, and she's so longing for signs Should of signs we'll of affection or attention from him, know, no. and he's. Be a doll and just get me but she's up. trying to keep her dignity too. She, Chloe packed a great deal into this first scene. What? I didn't hear you. I said, do not. Andre, very good with the uh, the shadows and the Venetian blinds. It's also another classic 80s motif that we used in the design. Thanks, Patrick.
1: I'm not here. And high heels. I like high heels.
0: When the door closes and Jean has left, Bateman's left alone in like the panic. Uh, sets in because we never see him do any work. Well some critics objected to that as you know how could you, you know misrepresent the world of Wall Street like this but it's not meant to be a, a literal representation of Wall Street. Of course investment bankers and brokers work very hard. but this isn't a realistic portrayal of office life. We wanted to stress Bateman's complete disconnection from the world around him. and so when he's left alone and the mask drops, there's nothing there he doesn't know what to do he has no role. And you know his uh, Reese Witherspoon's character makes a reference to the fact that his father practically owns the company, so there is that rationale. in the, bo- in the book, he doesn't do anything either. If you think that somehow it is a, pre- a pretend job, as as much of a performance as the rest of his life, and it's a facade. As his social life's a facade, and everything other, his romantic life's a facade. And in a way, if he had if he had real, if we showed him really working, it would. It would interfere with the kind of hallucinatory because feel that the book and I hope in. the movie give you. And I love um, Bateman's really annoyed here because everyone keeps talking. And actually, in, in the script, it was supposed to be just listening to the new Talking Heads album, but we couldn't get the rights I'm to the on song.
1: Of tears by the time we arrive at a spa, since I'm positive we won't have a decent table, but we do, and relief washes over me in an awesome way this is my cousin Vanden and her boyfriend
0: stash They're both artists. I see you've met and it's it's this is based on a fantastic scene in the book which actually takes place at Evelyn's apartment where the guys come around and she has her cousin there who's dating a downtown artist and the hatred and hostility and and, and suspicion between the downtown art people and the uh, Wall Street bankers is is very uh, cleverly played in the book.
1: Courtney is almost perfect-looking. She's usually operating on one or more psychiatric drugs. Tonight, I believe, it's Xanax.
0: One of my favorite movies of all time is Louis Bunwell's Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie, which is a fantastic, surreal satire on on the, uh, you know, life of rich Parisians who spend their whole time in restaurants but can never get a meal. And it has that quality of, of, I guess, that I was aspiring to here. Of, of not of both of a social satire and a kind of dreamlike world where things just dissolve and slip away and you never quite know where you are. That combination of like deta- a social detail and satire and 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 uh, hallucination. This restaurant is called Espace, and it's the only restaurant that is not in the book. Uh, we made it up because it's a, a play in all those sort of neo brutalist. Uh, American restaurants where everything's concrete and the menus are made out of uh, steel. (laughs) And it's kind of very chic and uncomfortable and kind of avant-garde. And I I wish that it was the triumph of Gideon Ponte and Jean de the art director, and our whole art department. And we, we ran out of time shooting, and you see hardly any of it. We had these fabulous paintings on the walls, which are fake schnabels and fake David Sallies and fake Anselm kiefers all the art of the 80s we wanted on the walls. The, uh, ATMs are very important to Bateman, almost as important as videos, videotapes. Our composer, John Cale, the legendary musician, founding member of the Velvet Underground and great solo artist, um, ...had been producing a group uh, of young women singers in Britain... ...and he had this idea to use their voices, which are these very ghostly young girl voices... ...to use them in the score, to sample them in the score... ...so that when Bateman meets this woman, who is, we assume, his first victim that we see in the movie... You hear these almost like the voices of other girls, other victims.
1: Bleachy, are you trying to say bleachy? Oh my God! Two things. I can't bleach a Charuti. Out of the question. Two? I can only get these sheets in Santa Fe. These are very expensive sheets, and I really need them. If you don't
0: shut your fucking mouth, I will kill you. This is the very first scene we shot in the movie, and Christian gave gives a very high gear, comic performance. One of the great things about his performance, he wasn't afraid to be totally offensive, which you can't do a film like this and be pussyfoot around it because Bateman is being so horrendous and outrageous. But he's Christian's kind of reveling in just seizing on all the worst aspects of Bateman. And then he does this switch where he becomes like socially he can't remember this girl's name. He doesn't know who she is. She's someone who obviously has a crush on him. He's showing these see- sheets that he's going to pretend are um,
1: well, oh crown apple. Go. Uh, maybe we could do lunch one day next week.
0: And part of the sort of the comedy in 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 Bateman's pathology is that he's acting as if these are things are completely reasonable. Like why can't these people get these stains out? That's what he's focused on—not a murder or nothing else. Why can't they get these stains out? Now we go back to his his pristine apartment where um, I love the. Uh, art on the apartment walls that Gideon found. Gideon Ponte was an art dealer in the 80s. And he, he suggested that he'd use these Robert Longo photographs of, like, Wall Street guys falling. I thought, oh, that sounds like two on the nail. And then he brought me into the set to see them, and I thought, oh, that's brilliant. We made up that porno tape box that was created by the art department.
1: Dinner. I
0: can't.
1: I'm thinking towards
0: Dorothy is nice. This is Samantha Mathis playing Courtney, who is the beautiful uh, and very uh, messed up and drugged out um, girl who's his fiance's best friend that Bateman's having an affair with. And of course, there's pornography in the background. We reckon that Bateman watched things, movies, in order to know how to do things, just as if he was a Martian who fell to earth and didn't know what to do in life. He was going to have sex, he'd watch pornography who's going to kill somebody who'll watch a horror movie. It's like he needs to get lessons from nothing can come from within because there is no within. Everything is modeled from outside. Facial at Elizabeth Harden, which was really relaxing. This is uh, something that happened. Um, Andre Sekula uh, setting up the camera in the cab, we found it turned out that the cab had one window that was blurry, and he set it up so beautifully that you can see her... But he's obscured, and then we really focus on just her. He's turned away, and it's just, she's she her kind of she's passing out, which is a it's a great comic performance from Samantha Mathis because she's getting the vulnerability and the drugged outness at the same time. She's she's playing the comedy here? as as Courtney passes out. Bateman reads one of Brett Ellis's most hilarious menus. This is Dorisia. Yes, dear. She's looking around, and she's—he's convinced her that she's actually at Dorcia. Dorcia is a restaurant that you never see. Of course, we want to make it clear that they're not at Dorcia, but at Barcadia. And Dorcia is like the Nirvana of restaurants for these guys, and it's—it's like paradise. We decided we couldn't possibly represent it. It was better left as an idea. So we show all the other restaurants. and Now he's so got her so drugged out. She's so drugged out that he's able to convince her that she was at Dorcia.
1: How on earth did you get a reservation there? Lucky, I guess.
0: Matt Ross, That's a wonderful actor playing Lewis Carruthers. He is the, that, um, the, the sort of the butt of all the other guys' jokes because mm-hmm. he's not the, um, the macho ideal. He has a huge this crush on song. Bateman and he's trying to compliment, to compliment on his suit while Bateman ignores him.
1: Hello, Albert Stram. Nice tie. Hi. How the hell are you? Now we're going to be Jared Leto
0: playing Paul Allen. In in the book, it's Paul Owen, but they made me change the name to Paul Allen, which I didn't choose because it was the Microsoft founder, but because I was just given a list of names that I was able to use. And I think Paul Allen was the first. And I later regretted it because everyone thought I'd used it because of Microsoft. It was just a mistake on my part.
1: Not great. Oh, well, you know. So how's Cecilia? She's a great girl. Oh, yeah. I'm very lucky.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Hey, Alan! Congratulations! On See the all pressure.
0: the extras, all the guys, good-looking guys. Everyone looking alike. Everyone in nice suits. It was very important to create this bed of 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 young men who all look alike. Um, I think uh, Justin very... F- and uh, Josh are all very funny in this. Jared Leto, who's even better looking than Christian, um, playing his his nemesis, his uh, the man who drives him to more more. Graham? flurries of anxiety cool. than anyone else because what do you think? Paul Allen is supposed to be more successful, nice. better looking, just uh, everything that Bateman the feels insecure
1: about. This scene was a
0: triumph for the sound designers, uh, Ben Chien and nice. Paul Urmson, who really used nice. um, a number of effects, but one of them was uh, a sword being whipped out of a sheath. To create that whoosh as the uh, guys whip the business cards out of their holders, so it's all you know. It's the sound signs is as, as if it's martial arts. This is uh, the re- I love the guys' reactions when they see the splendor of Paul Allen's business card. They're almost unable to to cope with it. And then when he mentions that he's been to Dorset, it's it's a, it's a sort of there's, an, there's a sort of rutting stag competition going on, but there's also a kind of a sort of teenage girls in the bathroom quality to all these, where they're kind of showing off their their stuff.
1: Look at that subtle off-white coloring.
0: He's holding That's up Powell Allen's up. business card, which again looks exactly like all the others, it even has a except part that that part. font is the one that we use in the titles. That's our alpha male font. In a break, uh, in shooting, the other guys came to me and said about Christian, he breaks into a sweat at the same point during every take. So after that, I started calling him robo-actor. So after our moment of social comedy, we go to a kind of Jekyll and Hyde scene. Lots of smoke machines uh, shot down here Hello. on Wall Street in New York. Um, some, uh, And it is, this is like a classic horror movie, movie? horror movie sequence. The alleys, the, We had to so loop the done whole done. thing because the smoke machines were so yeah. loud. Too, this is Reg Cathy, who's a very uh, fine stage actor. And in this scene, so Bateman um, sputs a lot of Reaganite slogans. Why? This is taken very much from the yeah, book. Where he's saying, you know, get a job. You know, um, trading? it's trading. Eighties.
1: Uh, Listen, what's your name?
0: Uh, You know, vulture capitalism philosophy. Smeagol,
1: come on, Al. Get a goddamn job, Al. You got a this answer. scene could
0: be sentimental, so Reg That's played it very restrained, restrained, which I admire. Because this, the character of the bum is one of the few kind of, you know, sympathetic, human, vulnerable characters. You but you don't want you don't want to play it sentimental because the rest of the film so Hungry. hard no bad, but what I love about Christian is that he's you know that? he's as, as ever acting you know um, Bateman's acting totally inappropriate he's treating the guy not as if he's a poor homeless person but as if he's another investment banker that he's trying to have a conversation with I don't have and trying common. to kind of give a pep talk to and then he gets bored and irritated by the character because you know he says that I don't have anything in common with you we played it that he's he could you know he could go either way he could give him money The Bateman in the way is like a pinball if he hits an obstacle he may go you know he may veer another direction he's about to leave and then changes his mind looks back decides he will kill him after all Again, this tries to echo the way the book goes from scenes of extreme violence into either social comedy or scenes of of tranquility, and you just kind of never never know where you are. And I wanted the film to have that really dislocating effect. So now we're in a very tranquil place.
1: I have all the characteristics of a human being. Flesh, blood, skin.
0: One of the difficulties of adapting a first-person novel like this, in which the... uh, Narration is very important. was finding places to hear Bateman's inner voice, so the, uh, the spa <laughs> scenes, which have these very obsessive, you know beautician moments, very beautifully framed by Andre Sekua, allowed us to put Bateman's, you know, the inner thoughts behind the mask-like face. <laughs> In the book. The party is staffed by dwarves, but we changed it to Filipinos, which is equally offensive. Um, but we felt like what worked in a surreal way in the book would be too much on film. But we wanted to get the idea of wealthy, privileged people with their servants.
1: Yes, you are. I've been here the entire time. You just didn't see me.
0: Say hello to Snowball. Snowball says... I can't remember whether or not the Vietnamese pot-bellied pig is in the book or whether we added it. But I know that when Gwen and I were researching, we went and watched old talk shows from the 80s, and in one of them, Melinda Carlisle was was on David Letterman talking about her Vietnamese pot-bellied pig. And we thought, what a great 80s pet. I feel like when look at this that we suffered from this was a scene that suffered from time constraints and budget restraint constraints I would have had I would have wanted more time to shoot I think we shot it on a day when we had two other scenes to shoot so it was very rushed uh, but we needed it to set up Paul Allen to set up Bateman inviting Paul Allen out to dinner also, I also liked you know it's uh, in the book it's a f- just a, just a Fantastic, you know, Christmas gala, and uh, I would have wanted a little bit more money.
1: For two at seven. No, I want to know. I came here for the cilantro crawfish gumbo, which is, after all, the only excuse one can have for being in this restaurant, which is, by the way, almost completely
0: empty. We wanted this restaurant to be a less chic restaurant because Bateman's deliberately invited Paul Allen somewhere where he knows they're not going to run into anyone else. Uh, Sean DeVell did a great set dressing job on the Mexican themes, and they're being completely beastly to the waiter. Soup, Actually, gave rather nice performance.
1: Here. Yeah, well, you're late. Hey, I'm a child of divorce. Give me a break. <laughs> I see they've omitted the pork loin with lime jello. We should have gone to Dorsia.
0: Most of the film's shot very wi- in, with wide lenses, and the effect is not to show an actual distortion. But there is
1: What are you thinking?
0: A heightened, slightly dreamlike quality. It's a non-naturalistic quality. We looked also at a lot of Kubrick when we were shooting this movie. And when André Sikul and I first met, we talked about Kubrick and this kind of crystalline look, this very deep focus, very sharp image. Another thing we talked about, which is that it should look like a beautiful commercial.
1: Did you know I'm utterly insane?
0: That I knew that we could get away with that. That it wouldn't look too glossy because that was the point. It should look very glossy. It should look very perfect because then the things that are taking place in this perfect world are, are so horrifying. But I think Kubrick is the master. Who is, Kubrick is the master of black comedy uh, in our time, and he used this kind of what some people call a kind of cold look um, for his social Uh, comedy. I told the art department that I wanted the floor to be covered in newspaper, that was in the script, and when we turned up on set they'd done this fantastic, fetishistic, you know, obsessive compulsive newspaper coverage, (laughs) 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 almost like Express Bateman's madness. I made André light this very, very bright, even though most of the lighting in Bateman's apartment and other scenes is much moodier. But I wanted almost like theater, like all the house lights are on. And I felt they would make it just feel crazier. And it's like a performance from Bateman. In fact, he's dancing. And Christian played this scene as Bateman's happy scene. In fact, he's taking some kind of upper drug. He's just like so happy he can hardly contain himself. Um, and E.C. listened, have, and the uh, costume designer found this wonderful, very strange and film, sinister see-through raincoat for Bateman to wear, because after all, he hours wouldn't hours want to get messed up.
1: <laughs> no, Helen. <laughs> is that a raincoat? Yes, it is. <laughs> this is, I think,
0: one of the scarier moments. The way Christian plays this, it's just this. Four, pure exaltation. Talent. Bateman is so ecstatic, he's so excited season. about this murder, he's just, it's, it's his happiest there. moment so in the film. Catchy. And when he started doing this dancing, which I hadn't actually expected, I was collapsing by the monitor and laughter. We um, put a plastic case over the camera so that he could sh- um, swing the axe directly in front of the camera. I'm not, I can't now remember what he's hacking into. But it was one of those moments of serendipity that when the blood splashed... It happened to splash just one side of his face. That was not intended. But when he sits down, it's like a perfect metaphor. His face is covered with blood, and when he turns at this point, it's almost perfect. So it's that kind of schizophrenic look. I love this shot, actually, with the body in the foreground. I aspire to the, the shots that I aspire to, the filmmakers I admired were Polanski and Hitchcock and Buñuel. I was trying to do homage in these scenes. There's a streak of blood here as he drags out the body, and we very much wanted him to, the, the uh, dormant, to completely ignore, be completely oblivious and uninterested. As, as everyone is always uninterested in any Patrick, of Bateman's murders there's this great moment uh, where Matt Ross as Lewis Carruthers approaches the, the trunk of the car and he stops and he's like open mouth and you think he's going to say Patrick what is is that a body in there
1: where did you get that overnight bag Jean-Paul Gautier?
0: and what Bateman should say is Comme des Garçons but we couldn't clear it so he says Jean-Paul Gaultier because Jean-Paul Gaultier was was fine with being in the movie
1: When I get to Paul Allen's place I use the keys I took from his pocket before disposing of the body There is a moment of sheer panic when I realize that Paul's apartment overlooks the park and is obviously more expensive than
0: the now, park. this is actually Paul Allen's apartment which we Des, had Gideon designed so that it would look actually nicer, bigger and, that's what I wanted, bigger and nicer than Bateman's. And this little piece of voiceover, which is just to just to express his jealousy, is something that was not in the book and we just put it in just to clarify Bateman's envy. That's why it's not as good as the other voiceovers because, I have to say, Brittany Snell has wrote brilliant narration.
1: Hi, this is Paul.
0: So here, and I I don't know if this was a a confusing plot point, but Bateman is is packing Paul Allen's suitcase and leaving a message on his answering machine because he's going to pretend that Paul Allen has gone to Europe. It's a terrible imitation of Paul Allen. And it's also, you know, see, this slightly klutzy, nervous quality that Bateman has. It's not at all smooth. He's, in many ways... M- most was a very risible character I think that few actors would have gone for that as bravely as Christian but for Christian most people would want to be cool, that was the problem with most of the actors who were interested in the role Christian couldn't make it dorky enough, he loved the absurdity of it
1: Tell him I'm at lunch
0: Patrick it's only 10.30, I think he knows you're here
1: Send him in I guess
0: now we're about to meet the character who isn't quite the nemesis now, John, but has no, elements of that, and that is the detective Donald Kimball played by William Defoe. And, and when I rehearsed these scenes with Lon, I asked him to play them three different ways, so we do at least three different takes of each yeah, scene. The, I asked him to play it one way as if he knew that Bateman had committed the man, crimes. Go. Another take as if he didn't know no that Bateman committed the crimes. The other one is if he wasn't sure. And then in editing the, John, right. the dialogue, I would be able to choose different emphases. No, I'm sorry, I Willem is done. a very riveting presence in this, and he said that at some point something very true, which Strolling is, you know, the less I do, the more disconcerting it is, and it's true. Like the more, right. more calm he is, the more nervous Bateman yeah. gets. I'm Donald Now also the absolutely uh, pristine, nice uh, obsessive, compulsive desk. I know how busy you guys can get. An office space that Bateman has. So, Bateman will get very, very nervous yeah. if anything's Topic out of, of place. I've been hired by <laughs> Bateman's been That's just listening case. to his Walkman in the office instead of working. He shoves that into a drawer guiltily so the detective won't know.
1: Paul's disappearance, yeah. So it's nothing that official. I just have some basic questions about Paul Allen, about yourself. Coffee? N- no, I'm okay. Paul and ours? No, I'm okay.
0: And the layers of anxiety. Sort of bravado, the mask uh,
1: no, in,
0: in Christian's performance, and then the ambiguity of Willem's performance. I think mesh really well.
1: right? Well, I um, I haven't heard anything about the disappearance or anything. Not on page. Red suspenders,
0: of course, the iconic Wall Street. Red suspenders, uh, pin, pinstripe shirts, and
1: Just some preliminary questions. red
0: or yellow ties, blue, red or yellow ties. How old are you? In the book, Kimball is the same age as Bateman, and in fact, again went to Harvard, and, and is another kind of doppelganger. Nice,
1: very nice. What can you
0: tell me? It could have gone that way, but then when the chance came to cast Willem he seemed to bring such, so much to it, and such an undercurrent of menace and tension that the film needed, that I felt that was more important than, than the doppelganger. We had a lot of doppelgangers already, I felt, in the film. So that was just a change of emphasis.
1: There's also, there's, there's
0: a lot of little references to, um...
1: No, not really. Where did Paul hang out?
0: Um, yeah, you know, Bateman says that, uh, Bateman here says that Paul Allen's a closet homosexual, even though there's no indication of it in the film. But there's, that, there's these guys, and Bateman in particular's obsession with homosexuality.
1: Don't you know this? I just wanted to know if you know. Before Yale, if I remember correctly, St. Paul's. Listen, I just, I just want to help.
0: Understand. at script level everyone who read the script said these scenes for the detective, they go on for pages they're like, this one scene is ten pages long you know, you're going to have to cut these, take them out, they're so long I said, I'm not taking them out I, w- I want to shoot everything and then I'll cut it down because I knew that once we got a rhythm, that you couldn't tell what was interesting, and what was work, that, that what seemed in a way banal on the page, if you had the right actors would become so tense and enthralling and even though I guess I did edit them down, but kept much more of it than I think anyone would have would have thought I could have, because the words are sort of innocuous, but the silences and the tension between them is so riveting. If you get great actors, you know the scenes mean much more. So I was glad that I fought to, to shoot everything. And in fact, production was getting very upset with me because uh, Willem asked if we could shoot everything not interrupt, so we we would shoot like ten minute rolls to cut. Co- for the conversation, I shot a huge amount of film, but I never, reg- I never regret overshooting film. You know, it's the one thing I think you should spend a lot Listen, on, because all assume. the choices and all the ambiguities, you know, it allowed to re- us to really fine tune the scene, to swing it one way or the other, because we had come. we had so much coverage.
1: You be no, there's one down here. I think here we have the
0: famous um, oh, really? Cliff Huxtable yeah, line Listen. that he's going to meet. Cliff Huxtable for lunch.
1: Any information? Absolutely, I'm 100% with you. Great. And thanks for your time, Mr. Bateman. Bye-bye.
0: Goodbye. One of my favorite, uh, perfect little, perfectly lit tableaus. With the sound of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. As I think we said before, uh, we felt that Bateman needed Bateman needed to take lessons from videos. So if he was going to kill somebody, he'd he'd watch a video. I particularly I laughed so much when we did this, and Christian started skipping because he had this way of just going for the absurdities of Bateman's machismo and that sort of girlishness that he, he suddenly. This big strapping guy skipping. Here is our introduction to the great Kara Seymour, I here. who I had known from her uh, as a stage actress and uh, really wrote this part for her. In the meat district, which even back in 1999 was actually... Still a slightly scuzzy area before all the incredibly expensive restaurants moved in. It was our last chance to shoot that area as it had been in the 80s. Come on, get in. And I love this perspective from inside the car. And the kind of satanic bargain that she makes as she takes the money.
1: Who does couples. Couples. Kara has a very, very expressive face.
0: Um, this is one reason why I wrote the part for her, because the character says almost nothing. I mean, in the book, she's like two lines of dialogue, and it's... Everything has to be in the lock. The fear, the, the relief to be in a nice car, the anxiety. You know, but what's going to happen? Her casing the situation...
1: Christian, I find a Chardonnay you're drinking. I want you to clean your
0: pajamas. Christian, we, uh, we called this tuxedo uh, Christian's James Bond look. And Christian himself said he'd no. seen a photograph in Playboy magazine, yeah. an ad called Man at His Best, which was supposed to be the suave, swinging guy, and he felt like Bateman here was trying to be man at his best. For Christian, this was Bateman in his romantic mode. He's really going to try and make it work. He's going to play this great music. He's got Thanks. the two girls coming over. It's like a romantic date. The problem is the girls just Christy? don't measure dry up. They just get it wrong, and then Bateman gets very angry. Uh, but he wants and, uh, it all to be perfect. There's a kind of, the way he talks, this is the, the dialogue from the book, which is a, the way he talks, the way he kind of orders Christy the prostitute you about. It's very oh, revealing. Let
1: me, let me take your coat.
0: This is the more uptown call girl. And already he's disappointed because he says, you're not a real blonde. So already Bateman's getting testy. More dirty blonde. Very fine performances from, uh, from all three in this scene, which is, I, I, if I had to... I think this is my favorite scene of the movie, where I felt, even as we were shooting it, that everything was coming together. I think it's helped by... Um, the set that allows so many vistas, so that the characters being isolated. Oh, oh this shot with the back of the head in the foreground, I think of as the shadow of a doubt shot because that Hitchcock movie has these great shots from no. behind the murderer, no. the back of the head, which is, always makes you very nervous. Wow. Just don't know what's happening. I work on Wall Street.
1: i Pearson Pierce, Pierce. Have you heard of it?
0: I think the silences in the scene and the, really nice the disconnect here. between Bateman trying to impress the girls, the girls' him. silences, well, their, actually, their their politeness as they try and Christine, please the client, their wariness and watchfulness know. within this kind of pristine, anxiety-inducing room. Uh, I think all work very well. And it, I and think the, drunk, the tableaus and the compositions know. are among the best. Know that Andre did. Did It was enormously hard to get all the music cleared. We had to pay very, very, very highly for the music. And if we hadn't, I don't know what we would have done because those songs were written in to the script. It had to be those songs. I tried to find different artists when it, there was a port where we couldn't clear them, and no, no one else seemed right. You know, uh, Huey Lewis, Phil Collins, and Whitney Houston were just perfect. I mean, Brett chose them for a reason. Uh, this, I love uh, the perspectives here and the uh, the advantage of shooting and all what's that. Uh,
1: meaning of the preceding three albums first take off the rope listen to the brilliant ensemble playing of banks Collins and Rutherford
0: I like I'm very interested in awkward sex and it was very important to me so many scenes with prostitutes are, are, sh- are shot and perform as now if it's really hot sex, whereas it's it's not hot. It's a Sabrina, it's a job in some well, ways, and an unpleasant band. job for these girls. And that's how, when we rehearsed it. That's what we talked about. This is a duty for them. They have to get through it. It's just something they're doing. It's not a great sexy experience. And so there's this kind of awkward, kind of sad thing of, Krista um, Sutton, uh, dancing in the background as and... He's, you know, dressing Christy in these outfits. And there's something just so, so sad and disconnected about it. And that's what, that's what I wanted from the scene.
1: Christy, get down on your knees so Sabrina can see your asshole. Phil Collins' solo career seems to be more commercial and therefore more satisfying in a narrower way. Especially songs like In the Air Tonight and uh, Against All Odds.
0: In the book, this scene is written as if it's a penthouse forum sex fantasy. And if I'd shot it like that, it would just seem like a porno movie. So the task was, how do you get that distance? How do you show that it's a fantasy? Um, and when we rehearsed it, I didn't quite know how, how to do it until I said to Christian, look in the mirror. And he started doing these hilarious poses and flexing his muscles in the mirror. And that's when the scene came together. And I knew that we had that disconnection it needed that so that you you could tell the difference between what he was going through and what they were going through. Shooting part of it also through the video camera helps to keep that sort of cold objective. The the night before we filmed this, um, Krishna and I talked about this we felt we needed like to work out some you know what positions it's it's a kind of awkward thing to shoot a sex scene so um, I had the production read a couple of porno movies and Christian got one I think I got um, you know confessions of a window cleaner or something and uh, I wrote down some positions and Christian came in the next morning with little stick figures of suggested sexual positions and that was good because then in a very kind of organized way you could say okay let's try this position that position which actually has helped. I'm told porno films have done. You know, position three, position four. And everyone, like, was a very good supporter about it because these scenes aren't easy to shoot.
1: Don't touch the watch.
0: In the book, he says, don't touch the Rolex. Because we couldn't get permission, we have to say, don't touch the watch, which I have to say does not have the same resonance. But it's still a beautifully lit scene, beautiful tableau, and and... you know, and there, people have asked, oh, did you cut out the scene of violence that follows? No, there was no scene of violence, and there isn't in the book either. All you have is the suggestion, which is scarier. And then the makeup department showing the effects of what would have gone on. And Bateman's completely like cold, and empty instead of angry. If they have
1: a good personality and they're not great looking, and who fucking cares? Well, let's just say hypothetically, okay, what if they have a good personality? <laughs> I know, I know. There are no, no girls, girls with good, good personalities. personalities. <laughs>
0: this is um, supposed to be the Harvard Club, which we actually shot in the lobby of the King Edward Hotel in Toronto, which looked pretty good, though. Um, and again, it's guys together, and it's...
1: McDermott
0: and Van Patten being exceptionally obnoxious about women. And at first you think Bateman's, you know, being more reasonable. But then he starts coming up with these out-of-left-field serial killer (laughs) killer references that draw everybody into bemused silence. It shows that even McDermott and Van Patten don't know how to take this, which is one of those important moments where you see you know, they may be obnoxious, but they're not psycho. I want to get your on and Bateman is crazy, and there, there is, there is that line between just regular human obnoxious behavior and insanity.
1: Oh, it's very nice, Lewis. Thank
0: you. And Lewis Carruthers seems to be sealing his death warrant by pulling out a business card that makes everybody. Their reactions here are just so. They're so mortified by the beauty of this business card.
1: Listen, what about dinner? Is that all you ever have to contribute, Van Patten? What about fucking dinner? Cheer up there, Bateman. What's the matter, no shiatsu this morning? Touching me like that and draw back a stump. <laughs> Hold on there, little buddy. Excuse me.
0: I get Bateman, Bateman completely lashing out and enraged in his, because he's driven to a frenzy by the business card. Griffin, in to a murderous rage. Which both makes sense within Bateman's character and its Brett's satire on the insane lengths that people care about tiny divisions of status. One of the great turnarounds in the film.
1: Where
0: Lewis Carruthers thinks that Bateman's making a pass at him and and kisses his wrist tenderly. And the way we played it, as you can see, Christian plays so well. Bateman is so paralyzed with horror at this come on that he's incapable incapable of further action and just starts compulsively washing his gloves.
1: Where are you going?
0: This scene is, I think, taken part and parcel from the book. Which is why I never understood why people didn't see that the book was funny. Because there are moments of, like, crazy high comedy. And as as Christian rushes out, there was a point where he, he runs over a waiter and, like, shakes his hand and says, good job. Other people are working in this office, we wanted to create a kind of hum of activity. It's really only Bateman. So in that sense, it's, you should sense a normal office life.
1: Kimble, I've been wanting to talk with you.
0: But when Bateman closes his door, no work is going on.
1: Do you remember where you were the night of Paul's disappearance, which was on the 20th of December? God. I guess I was probably returning videotapes.
0: This is the second... Interview with the detective.
1: I had a date with a girl
0: named Veronica. We I somewhat rearrange the detective scenes from the That's novel to I've to seen. give it who disappears earlier in the novel than he does in the film, to give it a bit more of a conventional structure. Even though when the detective appears, you think it's going to have some kind of thriller narrative of discovery, but it doesn't pan out that way. It's the detective line of the narrative just kind of slips and slides away yeah, just no, as everything else does because no, 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 if if you kept it going in a more then it would just a, have been a traditional thriller and it didn't seem to me that was what the book was about on the other hand the detective is a very important agent of of Bateman's paranoia and to some extent he's it's uncertain how real he is is he because he's so much Embodies Bateman's anxieties. It's like is he real? Is he not?
1: Huey Lewis in the news,
0: and and this this is the kind of most beautiful case. Cause suddenly he brings out Huey Lewis in the news, the the band that uh, Bateman played to Paul Allen while he murdered him.
1: No, I like music. And
0: Willem is playing this like completely deadpan and innocent, as if don't you like it? as Bateman goes more and more crazy says I, I don't like singers so, uh, lunch next so Willem is playing this completely like innocent but because it's Willem there's a little undercurrent that you just he's one of those actors where the, he, he just like embodies that ambiguity you just never quite know there's always oh. an undercurrent you know there's a lot of resonance in what oh. he does this is uh, another loveless sex scene or rather loveless on Bateman's part oh. Where, um, Samantha's having kind of Marilyn Monroe kind of vulnerability here, where it's kind of sad she, and this also comes from the book where she, she tries to reach out to him a little and he's like, why are you trying to talk to me? What are you doing tonight?
1: Dinner at a river cafe, old bar afterwards, maybe. That's nice. Never knew you smoked?
0: You never noticed. Listen, Patrick. Can we talk? One of the things I liked about this is that you look it goes in a kind of real emotion. She's about to try and talk and try and say something. And then she just Decides to not, not to, and just ends with a kind of like little social. Yes, Courtney. I, I think in the book it's have a good Christmas. If I don't see you before Easter, have a nice one, okay? But we had to make it Easter because we just had Christmas at the party.
1: You too. This is the
0: last time we see Courtney. I'm careful with shooting in mirrors because it can seem so. Stagey, but I feel like in this case it worked so well, and mirrors are such so so crucial to the story. We had the um, Toronto Drag Queens do a show for us just in keep with all those nightclub fashion shows of the 80s Angels and the Devil. Monologue from well, sure Tim Price about dyslexia and AIDS but, is actually from the very beginning of the book. We I put it into the uh, drug scene in the bathroom, but it was actually part of the opening. Originally, it was part of the opening of the movie, and, and this bathroom scene happened then. <laughs> and Andy Marcus, the editor, oh,
1: God.
0: What? said to me, "You know, this is this is so top heavy. Why don't you move that scene into the other nightclub scene?" I said, "Well, we can't. They're wearing different clothes." He said, "No one will notice," and he's right. No one ever has. They're fuck actually wearing you. different clothes in the bathroom than they are up here in the nightclub. Right. That is the faggot.
1: The next stall oh, thinks it's okay. Fuck you. They fuck you. <sighs> Sorry, dude. <A> steroid. <sighs> okay, let's do it.
0: Justin's very funny in this scene. He always plays plays Bryce as if he's even in in the in the uh, office. He's he plays him if he's slightly coked up, and here Bryce is. Much more crazy and unreasonable than Bateman. You know, Bateman's kind of the, the voice of moderation. Where did Craig go?
1: Well, Gorbachev is downstairs. McDermott went to sign a peace treaty between the United States. And this Russia, nightclub scene
0: Black- represents something about the '80s that I actually kind of miss about New York, which is just untrammeled hedonism. No, you know, not- anything goes. All downstairs. kinds of bad behavior. In nightclubs that outside, there was a sense in—I think—in the Reagan 80s of real lawlessness in New York. That there was just city; everything was just like all the constraints were off, you know, good and bad, um, and uh, which made for some crazy nightlife. But I think now it's a, a much more ordered and constrained city.
1: Where do you work out? I think I'm dumb,
0: don't you? We're trying to capture uh, the feeling of those nightclubs that were on like the, the, the far side of town, the far west end, like tunnel, where there was just like this kind of bleak cityscape. Inside, there'd be this crazy thousands of people, you know, packed together, and then outside it would be desolate and empty. Again, the lock of hair, that seemed to be uh, wrote that in is just you didn't have to see what happened you would just fill in the blanks yourself doing the crossword uh, that meat and bone uh, crossword yeah, by the I way know. is from the is in the novel where his every clue is meat or bone in many ways we we made the clothes less ugly than they were in the 80s you know less yeah. extreme but in this case, like we let, me let me Chloe have one really ugly 80s suit
1: if you're not doing
0: anything. Um, with the, with the wide shoulders. Christian, this is our real 80s wardrobe thing, because Christian's wearing the classic risky business sunglasses. Is.
1: Isn't this a coincidence? Listen, where should we go?
0: Anywhere you want.
1: Let's not think about what I want. How about anywhere you want?
0: I don't know, Patrick. I can't make this decision.
1: Come on where do you want to go anywhere you want just say it I can get us in anywhere
0: I love how you can see her face and she's she's kind of warm and up close and then he's shot very distantly Chloe's character is like a a little fawn and you fear from her So. and with Chloe shy you know Sort of proud, you know, vulnerable character who, who you feel is from a different class, a different world. Maybe not from New York. She seems. She seems to have come from a different place than all the other characters in the film. And in some ways, she is humanity. She is what is normal, what is real, what is what is good. And from the moment that they're, you know he's inviting her out there should be Your just a feeling of of threat and danger and tension of what her fate is going to be especially as she's blonde which is most of the victims are
1: for drinks and Jean, don't we'll want to change before we go out
0: Patrick, it's so elegant. What a wonderful view. Jean? The frozen headshot was achieved by having, um, as a low, low budget, only a low budget movie can, by having the model wrapped, with her head wrapped in plastic, uh, kneeling through, behind the refrigerator and sticking her head through a hole in it. So it's actually her head in that fridge, and she's yeah. just sitting there trying not to breathe too hard in the plastic. But I think it works.
1: You can always be thinner, look better.
0: Well, maybe we shouldn't go out to dinner. I don't want to ruin your willpower. But uh, Chloe and Christian are both so fantastic in this scene, which is like a nightmare parody of a first date. This is, I think, the only scene really that is actually not in the book. Just briefly. That there is a date, but it doesn't take place at Bateman's apartment. And we actually wrote, because really so much of the dialogue and and scenes are from the book, but this, most of the dialogue, we actually wrote as this kind of parody romance where she is trying to reach out to him and talking quite a lot of sort of self-help romantic clichés that you would get from, like, women's magazines. And he is, uh, the date from hell, I guess. Are you seeing anyone? I mean, seriously? Maybe. I don't know. Not really. And they're having this this kind of nervous conversation that people have on a first date with you know, you polite conversation with, with like little silences. In your life. Except that for a long time I've he's think th- you know, the audience knows that he's thinking about, that think about how or when or if to know. kill her or choosing a weapon. Growing. Growing. And and she's kind of earnestly trying to trying to reach out
1: did you know that uh, Ted Bundy's first dog a collie was named lassie <laughs> did you heard this
0: who's Ted Bundy forgot it what's that
1: duct tape I need it for uh, taping something.
0: Some of the dialogue, however, is taken from other scenes in the book. Patrick? Actually, there's a scene between Bateman and a young model where they, where he's talking about. Oh, he almost. You know that he's almost going to kill her because she almost right. put the spoon down on the table. Gene uh, pulls himself back together. There's a scene with a young model where she, he's saying, um, he starts talking about Ted Bundy, and the model doesn't know who Ted Bundy is. Um, Looking for one of my favorite sequences here, with, a shot, with the shot with the great Cindy Sherman artwork, and I was hmm. felt honored to be able to include that great artwork and <laughs> this scene of violence all in one image. You had the layers of Patrick. of Patrick. I know you're there. Cindy Bateman and and uh, Jean. Now, in this scene, you should feel all the way through the sense of threat, um, and it's it's choreographed. You know, as he's circling around her, she's static. He's circling; the camera's moving around. So you're always aware of him in relation to her. You know, as he as he checks his weaponry, as he moves moves around, as he moves behind her, and the telephone ringing, uh, we felt saved her. That it, Bateman's like a pinball shooting off in another direction. You know, the, he, it, there's no real that, uh, logic to it. It's just that it, if he hits an obstacle, like a fo- like the phone suddenly rings, it'll just spin him off in another direction, and the momentum's lost. So he's just lost the I'm I'm the, right to ask the the the, th- the thrill of killing her. He's run out of steam on it. Do you want me to go? In a, in a way, there's no more emotional logic it than that except that in their conversation at the end when he tells her to go there is some weird glimmer of humanity but it's sort of like a, a flicker and, I mean do you want me to go Poor Chloe. She was so upset after the scene because she said, "I only gave her one take for her close-up because we were running out of time. We had, as ever, we were really under the gun for shooting, and we shot a lot of, a lot of coverage as I usually do, and we did done done her other coverage. Then we had her close-up and we gave her one take." And and she felt so wounded by this, but it's like, but you were perfect, but it was perfect. And it was, I mean, I couldn't have wanted anything more. I felt she totally nailed it. Don't forget you have a lunch date tomorrow with Donald Kimball at Smith & Walensky's. Thanks.
1: Slipped my mind completely.
0: And at the end, then, sadly, she, Gene reverts back to being his secretary. She reminds him of his appointments. And the um, shadow of doubt, back of the headshot.
1: So, the night he disappeared. Any new thoughts about what you did?
0: The scene. Again, we shot on the very first day of shooting, I think. And uh, Bateman's makeup was rather heavy, too heavy. We later we later toned it down. the, the we always tried to give Bateman this tanning salon bronze, but in the first day the, the makeup was very heavy and we, we toned it down later. But in this scene it works, because it looks like his whole face is kind of melting and it just kind of gives him this strange, it's almost like he slapped makeup on. So it worked.
1: Does Marcus have an alibi? Yes. He does, you're sure.
0: Again, this is another one where um, I asked Willem to, to uh, I perform the scene three ways. That he, that he suspects him, that he doesn't suspect him. Where was Marcus? That he may or may may not.
1: With Paul Allen Who was he? With? He was at Atlantis with Craig McDermott, Frederick Dibble, Harry Newman, George Butner, and you
0: At this, you seem to feel through the culmination of all the mistaken identities that are scattered throughout the film and throughout the book, culminate in K- D- Detective Kimball providing Bateman with an alibi because someone had, thinks that they thinks that he was somewhere where he wasn't. And then you think, oh, well, then he's off the hook. But then I'm not sure whether we actually might have added this line of Kimball's uh, to what we took from the book, which was, but of course, for someone to kill, you know, Fred for absolutely no reason would be absurd, wouldn't it? And in that line, Willem delivers that as if as if he knows. So you should be left uncertain. Even seeing the scene now upsets me. I always felt like this limo is like the black like the chariot of death. It's carrying her across the river. And it's the hardest film... Well, this was the last night we shot. We shot all night in the Meatpacking District. And... It, I think, it, it, to me, it, I wanted, for all the kind of stylization and the comedy of the film, I wanted... I didn't want all the, the deaths to mean nothing. I mean, Paul Allen's death is played for comedy, but I wanted, in the end, the violence to mean something, and that you, I wanted you to remember Christy. And I wanted you to feel her death.
1: Lawyers are so complicated. Don't do that. Here's a check.
0: And there's this moment where Christy grabs a check, and in the book it says, he says that oh, the check, well, she would never cash it anyway she grabs and she's left and she's run away and she's, she's basically got away and then there's this fatal moment and to me it's still upsetting it, even now to look at this and to know what's going to and, and shooting this whole sequence, this scene, and the scenes that follow were, we're very intense I dreaded doing them all the way through the shoot. They came at the end, so we built up towards them.
1: Uh-uh. Half now, half later.
0: We then shot this whole uh, sequence in the car with what's known as poor man's process, where you just you know, can't afford a rig, so you just shine lights back and forth and shake the car. I feel it's worth it, because I think you're the only thing you're really looking at is Kara's is face. We di- actually just went out and shot some exteriors. We didn't have you an apartment. The there interior. just happened to be She's a window doll. lit in that apartment building, which we were pretending I was Batemans. Was we were very, very lucky, because we just well, needed you know, an exterior you know, to pretend so that you know, it was Patrick so Batemans to match know, with the sets that we shot in Toronto.
1: From Malcolm Forbes. Oh, my God, please. This is nicer than your other apartment. Oh, it's not that nice.
0: Where did you two meet? Oh God, we met at um. Oh, this is Guinevere Turner on the couch in the, playing Elizabeth. Gwen always wanted to play this uh, part because Elizabeth. There's a joke about how she was at Sarah Lawrence, and Gwyn is a graduate of Sarah Lawrence. So Gwyn, who uh, co-wrote the script with me, and uh, playing here, um, and I told uh, when we were rehearsing we said, said that Gwyn, we decided that Gwyn should play this as if she's from another movie. Like Elizabeth is this very bubbly, com- you know, com- you know, uh, stylish comic character. Really seems to have. To have walked in from a, from a, a light social comedy and, and really should, should, never, should have walked back in, you know, she's come to the wrong place. This is weird. Harley, it's me. I need your services. Translate that however you want. I'm so I, what I was trying to get in this scene was Who? these different instruments, like there's the Christie's silence and agony and dread, and there's Bateman's mask and him keeping up the social cause but with this sort of menace and like a you know this sort of some comic menace there. And then there's this light obliviousness of Elizabeth who thinks that she's in a completely different place. Doesn't understand what's going on. So there's this these these three different presences. What's
1: wrong with that? It's totally disease free.
0: <laughs> I wanted to get the feeling of like two three in the morning after a night out, after a night in a club, after, you know, people drunk, all stoned. The way time stretches in the middle of the night, you know, a couple hours it'll be dawn, you just, you know, it's just one of those people kind of beached on their sofas and, and it's just a very strange middle of the night feel. At the same time, they're having this complete comedy of manners conversation where Elizabeth is trying to talk to Christie as if she's another socialite and asking if she goes Sarah to the Hamptons. And there's this complete, again, comic mis- misunderstanding. And it's kind of really, because Gwyn's so bubbly and, you know, you know, funny in this in this scene, and then it, it, it kind of takes the edge, but then this sort of dread comes.
1: Called simply, Whitney Houston. Had four number one singles on it.
0: Christian uh, decided that notice? his... Whitney Houston monologue would represent Houston Bateman's roman- um, spiritual side. You own a Whitney Houston CD? And I w- knew that we would never get permission to use the Whitney Houston song, and I was resigned to not using the music at all. When our music supervisor said, no, but she, she, there's a version from the London Philharmonic that's just an instrumental. So this is the, the I think the I think it, it's anyway it's the orchestral version of The Greatest Love of All. Which, in a way, works better because you, as he's talking about the song and the music comes in, you don't. At, at, it, it builds. At first, you don't even realize that 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 it the song is playing, and then it reaches its its crescendo. As Bateman lectures us on on beauty and, and spirituality, while Elizabeth, who's laughing at him for having Whitney Houston records, has just signed her own death warrant. It's so an important message. You don't make fun of Bateman's record collection. Crucial. Christian and I talked a lot about what these music monologues meant. In the book, there's just chapters in which Bateman talks in a very sincere um, and enthusiastic way about his favorite music, all of which turns out to be extremely bland, very popular music of the um, mid to late 80s. And then within that, Christian broke down the song monologues into different modes, so Huey Lewis was happiness, Bateman at his, his, you know, rela- most relaxed and happy. Um, uh, Phil Collins was romance, as Bateman, the music that Bateman plays to the two prostitutes. And with Whitney Houston, Bateman finds spirituality. When I went in to check that closet to see how it was looking, the, the two girls waved at me from inside their plastic bags when I first went to look at them. Uh, there's no continuity in this. We just we just we just kind of cut together shots of her running round and round around and the hallway, so you don't quite know where you were I wanted to make it very disconcerting. This is one of our few handheld as well. We had very little. It was all on the dolly or 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 static tableaus There's very little active camera in this, but in this one, obviously, it was necessary. I wanted this to go straight, full tilt. Horror, uh, amazing screaming. Now, of course, in a real world, someone is going to answer the door. But in this world, for some reason, this is our world, in this ba- the American Psycho world. Nobody answers. Christian, we decided that I just deci- I wanted that to reverse and have. Whereas usually in movies, the girl's naked and the man's clothes, I wanted her to be clothed and him to be naked. And Christian was, um, was very good about this. In fact, he was hanging out in between takes by the monitor, chatting with the crew, wearing nothing but a sock on his penis and socks and ridiculous running shoes. So it was one of the silliest and covered in blood with a chainsaw. And he was just like, you know, how are you doing? When I look at this scene now, I, I understand why people who saw this movie when it first came out said, just didn't know what to make of it. I meant to do everything in there, and I'm—I—I I, I think it works, and I like it. But it is a crazy movie in a way because it does go so abruptly from one kind of one genre to another. You know, you're in one kind of scene, and then suddenly it's like full tilt horror movie where it just changes. But that's what I wanted to do. It's not an accident. I wanted to go totally that abruptly to plunge people into this complete crazy horror, horror movie world. And then as with the previous violent scenes, the next scene is completely tranquil and you're in another world. Because when I read the book, that was one of the things that most affected me, With these lurching things between a place of complete violence and craziness and then a world of society and safety and calm and order and, and, and like the daytime world and the nightmare world And the film I want to zigzag between the two.:
1: I don't think we should see each other anymore.: But your friends are my friends, and my friends are your friends. I really don't think it would work. something: I know that your friends are my friends, and, uh, and, I, and I've thought about that. You can have. Bateman is uh, really serious, yes, I am.
0: trying to break up with Evelyn. She's not listening to him. As ever.
1: And she's saying. Uh, an human. No, I'm in, I'm in and
0: she's torn. The, the way I discussed it with Reese was she was torn between, oh, sorry. I just, you know, not wanting. He's being horrible to her, but she's wanting to keep. Oh, no. The idea of, like, breaking her engagement is oh, so. No. Both hurtful, but it's also so socially inconvenient. So Reese is playing those layers of someone who just can't believe that her social world would be so disrupted. Oh, God, I
1: can't. Yes. I'm leaving. Assess the situation, and uh, I'm going.
0: Where are you going?
1: Just leaving. But where? I have to return some videotapes.
0: The videotapes joke is one that that is dotted throughout. Throughout the movie, there was, in the original script, a great scene in a video store. Sadly, the iconic New York skyline. This scene is one where I would say, for people who are looking for clues, I would say, certainly, from this scene on, you should not trust anything that you see. I think the... um, Here, kitty, kitty. Trying to feed the cat into the ATM is sort of a giveaway. The, I mean, the ATM speaking debatement certainly indicates that things have taken a more hallucinatory turn. There's also that casualness that he might shoot the kitten, but instead he shoots her. This scene, now, the following scene was shot both in New York and Toronto. So Christian runs out of the bank, past these cars. Not all of this. Not all of them work. He's setting off the car alarms. One of them actually doesn't really, doesn't work. Uh, with, with this kind of simple. That's this one that doesn't work. Couldn't we shoot it? Uh, he's going to run down this street in New York and turn the corner into Toronto, where we did most of our shooting. Now he's in Toronto, and the cars stop. And in the book, this scene is like Die Hard. It's a completely crazy, over-the-top violent fantasy. Here, we do something that's more realistic, but... If you see here, this is a completely, like, over-the-top. And, he, and even his reaction shows, like, what just happened? Like, is this real? And we it worked much better when we took all the sound out. So there's no real sound of the the explosion of the flames to keep it, like, dreamlike. And then, in one of my favourite Christian gestures, Bateman checks his watch, something he does whenever he's nervous. Uh, Christian is running down the Toronto Dominion Plaza in Toronto, which has, very fortunately, two beautiful towers that look almost identical, which is very necessary for this sequence. This is the completely... Casualness of the first murder in here. Where he becomes almost like a clockwork object just shooting automatically with no. Just why not? He just is an impulse. This is a process shot, an old fashioned process shot where Andre blocked off the um, uh, lower part of the, the frame so that we could expose the windows of the skyscrapers and then unblocked it and then shot Bateman running across. This is so we could really get those lights very bright. At this point you're sure now that he's going to whip out but it's just a pen. And Bateman now I think is now giddy with like panic and relief and fear. This is, I thought, this is one of the first things we showed, this is, I thought, really beautiful, Andre's use of reflections here. The trans lights are almost too bright. But on the other hand, it gives, again, a more dreamlike look. We're faking the helicopters here, just by um, spinning lights outside the studio window, these windows here in the studio. And this, I think, is Christian's finest moment in the film.
1: Howard! It's Bateman, Patrick Bateman. <laughs> You're my lawyer, so I think you should know I've killed a lot of people. Some escort girls in an apartment uptown. Uh, some homeless people, maybe five or ten. Um, an NYU girl I met in Central Park. I left her in a parking lot behind some donut shop. I killed Bethany, my old girlfriend.
0: Gwyn wrote this gun. this monologue uh, using a, a lot of the stuff we kept out of the movie. One. There were certain secrets, sequ- you know, many, many murders in the book, we decided which ones we were going to use. But then he lists the, a number of the others. that are actually some of the famous scenes in the book, and he just refers to them. I, he must have done 15 takes of this monologue of confession. This is one of the last ones, maybe take 14 or 15. It just got better and better as he, as he was able to work himself up into this combination of Panic, anything out here. panic, exhilaration of, of, of release, of confession. It basically built into more and more hysteria and collapse. And the more it built, the better it worked. So it became like he was sweating. It became a sense of complete collapse. This whole sequence, beginning with the the kitten and the ATM, uh, the shootout in the streets, the murders of the murder of the uh, watchman and the helicopters whirring through the building. This whole scene is, is, is like a mini 80s disaster movie or thriller where there's explosions and police and helicopters. It's like a movie within a movie. In a regular genre movie, the shootout and the confession would basically be the climax and the end of the movie, over. But th- it doesn't. This it not end there because it's not a genre movie. It's not. It's not a, a narrative like that. So you think then that this should be the end of it. He's killed all these people. He's confessed. But instead, it goes somewhere completely different.
1: So you know, keep your eyes open.
0: And afterwards, there's a kind of emptiness and relief he's feeling. This is a stock shot of New York City towers that we couldn't afford our, to shoot ourselves. This is the, from the balcony of Ed Pressman's apartment. We needed, we needed, a, we needed a sense of the calmness of early dawn. And Andy Marcus put this in. Later, we just built the sequence out of stuff that we'd already shot, because we realized that after that crazy night, we needed a sense of calm, tranquility, as there is after these violent sequences. And the shower worked just as like, yeah, renewal. He's confessed. And this was a scene of this beautiful wardrobe that the art department had built that was supposed to go in the very beginning of the movie, and we didn't have room for, but it found its place here. Always shoot too much, that's the answer. Now, I think this has, I can understand why this is confusing to some people. Bateman's going back to Paul Allen's apartment to check on the bodies and the mayhem. And he goes in, he's wearing a mask because of rotting corpses. And the whole apartment's been painted. And I actually made an error of judgment to have them paint the whole thing because actually it doesn't look like Paul Allen's apartment anymore. And I think it's probably confusing to people. I should have had them be in the process of painting it so you could still see the old walls of the old brown you know, Paul Allen apartment so there's our real estate agent and somebody's trying to sell it but this is the closet where the last time that door was open we saw the two naked girls hanging and he's going to open the door and looks around that's the scary room that Christy ran into and it's just an empty closet there's nothing there And now he's really scared.
1: Are you my two o'clock,
0: Patricia Gage, playing the real estate agent? Can I
1: help? She's a very
0: fine actress. See, um, I'm looking for. Asked me how you know. At first said, should she play it realistically? Should she play it as if she's scared of Bateman, you know, no, of no, no, no. this guy who suddenly just wandered in and seems to be behaving so strangely? And you saw the ad. I, I said no. You should just be yours. You should be the embodiment of his fears, of his paranoia. So she's like a sinister wall that he's come up against, and he is scared, and she is immobile. So he is falling apart, and she is the fixed point.
1: I suggest you go.
0: It's very uh, ambiguous this scene, and so it should be. You could read it as simply. New York greed of real estate people wanting to to rent out or sell an expensive apartment not to know about terrible things that took place there or it could be all in his imagination, his his embodiment of his paranoia. It should slip between the two. I don't think you can find the meaning in in just one answer. One of the rare scenes where we actually are out in the real world in daytime, it's much more. You see the streets at night because the film creates a very uh, artificial world. It creates its own self-contained world. But here, we're shooting low angle, so we're not seeing a lot of the world. We're just seeing Bateman against the buildings and the sky, which is how you get away with it. You can't see too much of the real world in this film. It would just—it just breaks the spell, I think. Craig McDermott called. He wants to meet you, David Van Patten, and Tim Bryce at Harry's for drinks. Oh, God. You see, you dumb bitch. Patrick, I can't hear you. <laughs> what am I doing?: <laughs> Where are you, Patrick? What's wrong? We feel that Jean has become worried. I've, no Gwen and I right. really like Gene as a character. In the book, Jean actually ends up marrying Bateman, and in the book, she's sort of complicit. She knows that these things have, have gone on, but she no. ignores them or it, doesn't want to acknowledge them. And I guess because we like Jean, we felt like she shouldn't marry Bateman. That we imposed on the on the narrative, so we um we had her end in more suspicion, fear, and confusion. That she knows something's going on, but without proof. Christian does a great hysterical falling apart scene here. This actually imposed on the text is the idea that she would find something, some proof. But it's not a proof. It could be anything. It's these drawings that are are like the inner. It's the artist in Toronto these great, childish, crazy doodling in his date book. That is like a, you know. Christian is just so sort of pathetic and fallen apart, and he's so sure his whole world is collapsed because he doesn't—he no longer knows what is real. So he's in a complete, I think, panic. This table for three, Bateman. look a
1: little wild-eyed. Rough day at the Bryce, office. B-R-Y-C-E. Hey, look, Bryce is back, and he's drinking mineral water. Yeah. he's a changed man. He's except we still can't get a reservation to save his life. We wanted the film to end, to end
0: as it post. began. I'm not going With him in the world of guys. All this has gone on, and yet it's it's that sense of full circle. Nothing in a way has changed. He's back with the guys, the usual sort of badinage. He sees his lawyer across the room. The lawyer, Harold Carnes, is the man he confessed to. This is a scene from the book, where Bateman sees his lawyer at Harry's bar. He, of course, does not recognize him, thinks he's somebody completely different
1: you get my message. Jesus, yes, that was hilarious. That was you, wasn't it? Yeah, naturally. Bateman killing Alan and The Escort Girls. That's fabulous. That's rich. What exactly do you mean? The message you left. By the way, Davis, how's Cynthia? You're still seeing her, right? Wait, Harold. What do you mean? Oh, excuse me. Nothing. It's good to see you. In
0: these sequences where... Edward Towers... In the book, you have these frequent suggestions that Bateman is not the studly, you know, know perfect GQ model, because this uh, references to Bateman as being this pathetic loser when other people talk about him. And you don't know whether that's Bateman's own fear or whether this is actually true. There's this, again, slippage between you know what is real and what is not. So here the lawyer is saying you know Bateman's such a pathetic loser. If it was anyone else, I would have believed it. Stop. I did it, I killed him. I'm Patrick Bateman. If it was just manic energy and comedy, then Christian's performance in this movie would be a, a, a Jim Carrey movie. It would be physical comedy and and exaggeration. What is remarkable? These are these l- the subtlety of it. There are these lightning quick shifts of mood and reaction that show someone just like spinning through so many different emotions and 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 which create a sense of so many layers because really great acting is about layers of emotion that so many things are suggested at once and with this he's he's spinning like a top he's spinning through through panic suspicion relief gladness you know anger you know i don't know i know of a screen performance where so many emotions flicker past so quickly and i liked it
1: i can't make myself any clearer but that's simply not possible and I don't find this funny anymore.
0: And this is the denouement Why isn't it where you realize once and for all that Bateman is not going to get caught. He has confessed. He has been, you know, as obvious as he possibly can be. He has tried to tell people that he is the psycho killer, and no one will listen. It's a society where no one. He could be caught, but nobody cares to catch him. No one cares to listen. And because everyone is so interchangeable, he's constantly being given alibis, even when he doesn't want them. I I toyed with the idea of having Gene really discover that he was, which would have changed the whole meaning of it, really discover that he was the murderer, and that would have given it a more conventional moral ending. And I may not even have had her discover these notebooks. Maybe that was taking it too far in a conventional direction. On the other hand, I think they're just drawings. You know, All they're revealing is a sick mind or a sick sense. It's not like a confession. I didn't want to take it so that, oh, he's going to be caught. Because really the meaning of the book is, and it's part of the sort of dark satirical aspect of it, he can't be caught even if he wants to, and his punishment is not to Iran be caught.
1: How can he lie like now that? Left in this How can he pull that shit? What I'm shit? Now, where do we have reservations at? I mean, I'm not really hungry, but I'd like to have reservations someplace. How can you be so fucking... I don't know. Cool about it. Some guys are just born cool, I guess.
0: The Reagan speech, and um, watching Reagan on the television is from the end of the book. This scene is is pretty much as the end of the book is. I I usually avoid very direct topical references when doing period, because it just seems I'm worried about being too heavy-handed. But in this case, we've avoided it all the way through. You're not seeing newspapers. You're not seeing television references to this or that. And somehow, I can't explain it. It just seemed right to do it here. I felt it worked in the book. And you could say, oh, that's a very heavy-handed way to bring all the themes together, but there's so much else going on in the scene, and it's only one element of others. I, I felt like if we're going to do it anywhere, we can do it here. Yes, it's about the ring in 80s on one level.
1: There are no more barriers to cross. All I have in common with the uncontrollable and the insane, the vicious and the evil, all the mayhem I have caused and my utter indifference toward it, I have now surpassed. My pain is constant and sharp, and I do not hope for a better world for anyone. In fact, I want my pain to be inflicted on others. I want no one to escape. But even after admitting this, there is no catharsis. My punishment continues to elude me and I gain no deeper knowledge of myself. No new knowledge can be extracted from my telling. This confession has meant nothing.
0: In a sense, I think that Christian's performance, and I hope that the slow tracking shot in on his face, as he says, you know, this, this is it. There is no way out. This is my life. Uh, the last line of the book is that there's a sign behind him. This is not an exit. And I actually wanted to do that and have that sign up. Which, When they brought me the sign on the day that we shot this, it was like, I said, but this is so small. You can't see it. And they said, well, if you're going to fit it on the door, that's how big it is. It's is a bit like in Spinal Tap when they bring in the set and it's like six inches long. <laughs> um, and then, actually, Gideon Potter said to me, "You know, I really am relieved that it's that small because, you know, it's it's a little too obvious. It's too like nail on the head for you to actually just show that sign." And I realized that he was right, and it was too it would be too heavy-handed. So in the end, you know, if you look hard, you can see this little sign, which is a reference for those who, who love the book. But I think the the larger meaning is just. I don't know about the larger meaning, but in, instead, I think that you, you you take the meaning from that last tracking shot into Bateman's eyes, where you sense that he is in his own hell. And you uh, there's the um, panning around the room where you take the, all the sounds been drained out of the images, so it's just this hallucinatory world that goes on around him. That he is that he is. You have to feel it a bit like he does. He has no connection to it. It means nothing to him. He can't hear it. He can't feel it. And he's just stuck in his own, you know, as uh, was it, uh, Satan says, you know, this is hell nor am I out of it. You know, it's, you know, hell is where you are, carries his hell with him. There is no, you know, one of the things that separates it off from a traditional serial killer film, there is no punishment and there is no retribution. In that sense, there's no satisfaction, human satisfaction, for a punishment for all the, the mayhem that Bateman caused. Um, on the other hand, you feel that he's tried to con... This, the satirical import, I think, is that he has tried to confess, he has confessed, no one is listening. And his fate, then, is to be left in his own circle of hell.